this this letter this epistle to hebrews is like i've said it is it is rich and it is one of the most challenging books uh in in the bible in the new testament um that's probably why i haven't gone near it for 10 years but we're gonna have a crack at it it provides us with this incredible uh picture of who jesus is but as it does that it also provides us with perhaps the best example of how understanding the old testament how having a good working knowledge of the old testament helps to clarify for us the person of Jesus and, and the work of Jesus and, and the gospel that, that, that emerges out of that, that's attached to that. And yet while the book of Hebrews is rich in its um, biblical uh, theological exploration and explanation of the work and the person of Jesus, you know, that, that gives us this confidence in the gospel, it provides us very little, close to no information about uh, who wrote it. Who was the author of this book? Who received it? Where, where was this book going to? Who were the first original readers? What we can know with a fair amount of certainty is, uh, you know, given the description within Hebrews of um, active participation in the temple, that it was probably written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So we, so we think, yep, it's, it's written very early uh, before 70 AD. So it's circulating in the churches while eyewitnesses are still alive. There's eyewitnesses to the death and the life and the resurrection of Jesus. These people are still kicking around. They can still say, yeah, no, that's what we heard him say. So there's validation at that level. But the apostolic witness is dying out. Like the apostles, those who have been invested with sowing this truth into the church and, and writing scripture if you like they're all dying religious and political persecution is seeing an end to these to these lads so this is what the new testament authors are doing as this apostolic witness dies out these boys are sitting down and going we need to put this down so that this testimony doesn't die out but this persecution that's killing off uh, the apostles is also pressing into the church a persecution that reaches into the lives of these believers at a social level, if you like. There was stigma around uh, Christianity in the early days. It hasn't changed much. Uh, it was pushing in at religious and legal levels. Uh, Christianity wasn't a recognized religion or system of faith, so it wasn't protected by the laws and the institutions of the day. It was politically targeted, institutionally targeted, and it was economically marginal, marginalized faith. There's a mouthful. So as people came into contact with this faith, as they heard the gospel and, and, and they began to listen to it and it began to take hold of in their life, they could see the beauty of it. They could see what was on offer, what was being presented to them in Jesus. But they could also at the same time see the cost of this. That's kind of what's, you know, later on in Hebrews 10, you know, that's not necessarily saying, can you lose your faith? But let's say, are you going to take hold of your faith? You know, are you going to step into this faith or are you just going to drift back to where you were? For some in these churches, it was too much. Too much to take hold of faith in Jesus, too much. Could they, you know, have a foot in one camp and a foot in another camp? in Judaism, in Christianity. The drift back to what was environmentally uh, comforting 
Uh, what they knew, what they come from was very strong. No one enjoys oppression, uh, the loss of privilege, marginalization, unless, unless they've got something better that, that holds them in place in that. The author, who does not introduce himself or hint to his identity, um, does tell us in Hebrews 2 that a little kind of, we get a little description of who this author is there in Hebrews 2 3. That, like the audience, the people that he's writing to, he has received the gospel. He is, he is, um, it's been attested to him just as much as it's been attested to them. It came first through Jesus, and now it's come through the apostles, and he's in the same boat. So, the author is not an apostle, he's not a Paul, he's not a Peter, but he is one who has recorded firsthand the preaching and the teaching. This is you know, what I think, of a Paul, of a Peter. Commentaries kind of all agree on this sort of thing. The author also claims to know Timothy intimately. So, so this puts him in that apostolic circle, puts him at, at the center of it. So he's someone like a Luke. He's someone, could be a Barnabas, could be an Apollos. We don't know. We have to speculate. Someone who heard the message of the gospel about Jesus and saw firsthand the, the validating miracles that accompanied the apostolic testimony. So he has seen and witnessed um, the, the truth and the nature of the gospel. This epistle, uh, this letter, has always been known from the earliest records as the letter of Hebrews. Now you look up church, uh, early church fathers and documents, and they always refer to it as the letter of Hebrews, which is still kind of vague, but Hebrews is another name for the Jewish people. So it's kind of like um, a letter primarily to the Jewish audience, for Jewish people. And that kind of would explain the assumption that the author has, that his audience is very familiar with the content and the context of the Old Testament, uh, practices of priests and festivals and all this kind of thing. He, he just talks about these things through the letter like they know what is going on. The audience then is believed to be Jewish Christians who grew up in Judaism and now have believed in Jesus, are coming to faith in Jesus. Possibly, given the references in this letter later on in, in chapter 13, they comprise an association of house churches, a cosmopolitan sort of setting, probably Rome, could be a city like Alexandria. Again, we don't know, but we're... But given the language, we think, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's not out in the sticks somewhere. It's the city, and there's these house churches. They're all gone through the same thing. Life previously under Judaism, under uh, Old Testament mosaic systems, was very uh, concrete. It was very tangible uh, thing that you experienced. You could sort of see the temple. You could go in to the temple. You could carry your sacrifice in there, you know, and chop it all up, and the blood, and the and the offerings, and the sights, and the smells, the incense, at the thing, and all this sort of stuff. Touch all the objects. Engage. Very tangible faith rituals and practices. And however, as engaging as it was, all of that, all of that system was designed to anticipate something infinitely more superior, uh, something better. And apart from those who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, like John writes in 1 John about how we saw him and how we touched him and all this sort of stuff, 
We can't see, smell, we don't have that tangible experience, physical experience with Jesus. The tangible cultic uh, participation of uh, the Hebrews, of the Jews, has transitioned into a faith in things hoped for, of convictions, uh, of things unseen, based on the new realities alive in the hearts of believers. It's a faith of personal transformation, not merely public participation. It's, uh, it's works are internal, if you like, and not so much external. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't produce works, that it doesn't have a lifestyle that comes out of this transformation. Of course it does. It's a, read about the fruit of the Spirit. But how does this... Uh, hold a person in place? How does this internal, there's nothing tangible anchor to, to go to, to hold in place. How do these believers, um, how does this faith in, in, in better things uh, that are unseen than, than the tangible things hold them in place? And this was the challenge for the believers and the author set out to address them, to let them see um, why Jesus is infinitely better than anything else you could have had under um, a mosaic system, under the old system, under any system. Now, obviously, we you know don't feel the pull back to some familiar, uh, comforting, uh, safe practice, you know, legally recognised, uh, socially accepted religious expression of Judaism. That's I don't think there's too many of you feeling the need to drift back there. However, we are all tempted or feel the drift towards other things that we suspect or on occasions we just feel might be better than Jesus, more tangible. Our careers, our, our, our social and sporting achievements, our financial comfort, our relational pleasures, even our safety. What Hebrews gives us is this doctrinal framework, this hard evidence of, a, of faith and a clear understanding of how and why Jesus is better than anything else that we may be tempted to drift towards. Hebrews, in this sense, seeks to present a faith and preserve our faith. It's a fun little fact about the book of Hebrews. The word uh, kriton, uh, the word better, shows up more time in Hebrews than the whole rest of the New Testament. There you go. Put that one in next time as a trivia Thing you can go, yeah, no, that's what it's all about. Jesus is better. And the author goes on and on about it. One of the other distinguishing factors of this epistle, this little letter, is that unlike other letters in the New Testament, there's no greeting, there's no introduction. That's why we don't know who wrote it. There's no, hey, I'm Paul from Ephesus, how's it going? There's no greeting, no introduction. The author just gets straight into the point of concern that he wishes to address, like he's just straight at it. And here's what he says, God has in no way been unintentional or concealed about how Jesus is the planned better of, of human history, of, of redemption of history. In fact, he has spoken throughout history to his people in many ways, and now he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. It's a contrast statement that he opens up with. It's a statement of the partial to the perfect. One of the biggest questions that people have is, how can I know God? 
Who is God? What's he like? And what does he, what does he think about me? How does he move towards me? How does he act towards me? And the opening of the book of Hebrews tells us that God has been speaking to us from the beginning of creation and has now given us all we need to know about him. His whole story ending in Jesus is finally made and fully made known in Jesus. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what he's like, what he thinks about you, how he moves towards you, then study the person and the work of Jesus, of the Son. The author kind of implores as he starts this letter the language that would evoke for these Jewish people uh, connection to the Torah and, and the book of Genesis. It's, it's similar to the way that John starts his gospel. Hebrews takes us back to the beginning of creation. Long ago is the language. It is significant that Hebrews sets the gospel and the story of the person and the work of Jesus as not beginning in Bethlehem, not beginning with the, the birth of Jesus, but he takes it all the way back to creation and the covenants and all of that's involved in the Old Testament. The person and the work of Jesus does not happen, does not turn up without context, without understanding, without anticipation of his life and all that he'll do. The incarnation... The arrival and the birth of Jesus, you know, what we call Christmas, is not the first and only time that God has acted in human history. But rather, God has been constantly active, preparing for the coming of Jesus since the dawn of creation, speaking and explaining the unfolding action of redemption, uh, what God is doing for and to uh, humanity through as uh, through things as Don Carson points out, he's been doing this through direct dictation, as, as say with a Jeremiah. He's been doing it uh, through visions of the night, as with Eliphaz. Uh, direct laws in laments, in oracles, in typological utterances, in genealogies, in prose, in, in fables like the one of Jotham and Judges. He's been doing this, speaking to our forefathers, so that the gospel does not arrive in a vacuum of knowledge, but rather an accumulated body of revelation and practice. This is what has been preserved in the Old Testament and revealed to the fathers and the prophets. This is how God has made who he is and the relationship uh, and the plans that he has for humanity known previously up to this point. And in this way, the author aff affirms the authority and legitimacy of the Old Testament. And yet, that it's incomplete, that it's awaiting something. It's, it, it's a story that's awaiting its climax. The Old Testament anticipates something better, something much better. In verse 2, uh, the author kind of contrasts or, or, or presents the contrast of these two different periods of time, two different covenants we'll, we'll see as we wander through this book. What took place long ago and what has taken place now in these last days by the sun. Well, this phrase, these last days, is loaded with expectation. Michael Kruger in his little work on Hebrews describes its presence at the start of this, this book as like lighting a stick of dynamite and just kind of chucking it into the center of the room. For generations, God's people have been waiting for the, for the last days, a special time when God would intervene in the world and bring about uh, the redemption that he has been 
promising all the way through the prophets, through the Old Testament, all these promises that he's made towards his people. And by using this phrase, the author is saying that that time is now. It's happened. God has acted. And how has he done it? In the Son. Jesus is what the world has been waiting for. Jesus is what the Jews have been waiting for. The New Testament authors, as they begin to write, the New Testament authors, when they now use the word the last days, they are not talking about a length of time, but they are talking about a, a type of time, the kind of time that we are now in. We are in the last days. It's the time between uh, the resurrection and the return of Jesus. Got no idea how long it's going to be. But God has spoken clearly, definitively, and personally through Jesus about how to live in this time. So do so live accordingly. This, in essence, is to say that Jesus is the conclusion to an already existing story found in the Old Testament. And at the same time, the Son is a new and far better revelation than the one that has been proclaimed and anticipated about him. That's not to say that the Old Testament is incorrect or deficient, but as Sam Storms points or puts it, it's not a contrast between what is false and what is true. It's more like a contrast between a seed and a flower. What is incomplete and partial against what is consummate and full. What it progresses into, becomes, develops towards. You want to know about God? Then look at the Son. Look at what he says, what he does. The Son is the clearest picture of God you will get. Jesus is better than anything presented so far. In fact, there is a clear a qualitative difference between the Son and, say, a prophet or an angel. The Son is divine in nature and origin, equal with God. The Son is the fullest, most complete revelation of the Father possible since he shares the Father's divine nature as the second person of the Trinity. That's what, that's what the author is just about to unpack. The Son's position and place in the universe and creation is painted with this highlight reel of, of names and titles, uh, activities, and these descriptions throughout these next few verses. The first one is that the Son is the heir of all things, is using a well-understood uh, category that the audience would immediately uh, grasp and know. As, as this kind of an heir, with this kind of a nature, this, this sort of what he is... Um, the, the, the inheritor of, this is saying that the son has been invested with everything. It's this universal scope, full authority to represent and act as God. To encounter the son was to encounter the father, which John, when he's writing his gospel, makes clear. Um, he writes about what Jesus says about himself and his relationship with the father. I and the Father are one. You can read about it in John 10. There's, there's nothing in the universe that is not under the care and the control of the Son. He, it's all coming to him. It's all already coming and there to him. And one of the things that the Son is an heir to is the church and the community of believers. They are his community. They are cared for by him. 
And nothing has the authority to change that. Nothing has the, the authority to snatch that away, to take that away. He is saying, you, you people, you collective, you are under the care of Jesus. Furthermore, the Son is not merely the culmination of the saving works of God within history, but he is over history. He's the origin of history. He's the agent of creation. As the agent of creation, Jesus shares equality with God. He is the source of creation. All things, everything owes their being to him. Uh, we're the smallest little atom molecule thing to the vastest expanse of the universe all owns its origin to him to be in a transformative relationship with jesus is to be under the care of the one who holds and unfolds all of creation from beginning through to end jesus is uh, as he describes himself the the uh, alpha and the omega all of it is under his care he isn't just in charge of a synagogue or an empire. He is the agent of creation. And you are a part of his inheritance. You are what has been uh, bequeathed to him, if you like. And in an astonishing development, uh, it would have been for the Jews as they read this, the author uses the imagery of the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. Uh, the word the Shekinah means dwelling. It turns up in the Old Testament um, when the glory of God is, is manifest itself physically before the people. It turns up in places like Exodus uh, 19, uh, 16 to 18, when God appeared at Mount Sinai, or Exodus 40, when the completion of the tabernacle takes place and this cloud covers it and the glory of the Lord fills it, the Shekinah of the Lord fills the temple, or in 2 Corinthians. Chronicles 7, when Solomon finishes praying and then fire just comes down uh, from heaven and consumes this burnt offering that he's placed there. And it says the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah of the Lord filled the temple. The Shekinah was the visible glory of God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And the writer of Hebrews says that this, sec this person of Jesus, we have the exact expression, the exact imprint of the Father's nature and glory dwelling with us, making God known. Far greater and better than any uh, mediation of a priest or a prophet or any kind of natural phenomenon. Jesus, unlike other people or elements of creation, has the same divine essence as the Father and makes God known. Hebrews is saying to know Jesus is to know God. This picture, this person of Jesus, as better grows even grander as the author lets us know that not only is Jesus, not only in Jesus do we have the agent of creation and the glory of God, but we also have the one that preserves creation, holds uh, all things together through the word of his power. He sustains or upholds all things through this powerful word. Everything in creation is contingent upon the Son who is distinct from it but not disconnected. The Son holds the power to create, holds the power to preserve, the power to control, it even holds the power to end. Like if Jesus willed that creation should just you know, disappear, then it would. It just kind of cease to exist. If Jesus can hold the universe together, 
then he can hold your world together. The same power that creates and sustains and preserves creation is now the agency of your faith. It's now the same power, that same relationship is there holding you together. The point is, what could be better? What could possibly be more dependable, more durable to place uh, your life upon, to live your life out of than Jesus? Hebrews tells us that in the person of Jesus, we find someone better than any other person to have lived. Indeed, in Jesus, we, in Jesus we see the person of God. We see the second member of the Trinity speaking to us, making God known to us. The author now makes a shift from the person of Jesus uh, as being better than anything else to the, to the work of Jesus as being better than anything else. The transition occurs through the writer's acknowledgement that the Son has made purification for sins. It's an abrupt change that serves to hold the person of Christ and the work of Christ, of Jesus, as a whole. These two things are a whole. The language of purification would recall the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the continual work of priests to make sacrifices through bulls and goats to acknowledge and atone for the sins of the people. The author is telling us that the Son himself, through a definite act of his own death, the cross, has made a once and for all sacrifice to permanently deal with sin. This is the work of the Son. And it's unlocked these last days, a time of a new covenant in which Jesus becomes our perfect and better high priest himself through himself, making us right with God. And this is going to get fleshed out. All of this kind of all of these little things that the author is introducing here get fleshed out through the rest of the book. That this sacrifice is enough. And that there is nothing more to be done for people to have their sins forgiven is conveyed through the fact that the son now sits down his work of redemption complete. Real, full and final forgiveness of sins complete. And Jesus sits and rests and rules at the right hand of the father. Now Old Testament priests, they never sat down. There was no chair inside the tabernacle or the temple. Their job was never done. You know, uh, again and again, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Read about it later. Day after day, the priest stands and performs religious duties. This is, this is the pattern of the old things. But Jesus has paid for our sins and he has sat down because the job is done. The wrath of God towards sin is now fully satisfied. Rest and peace are now the new relational environment between God and people. This is what the, this is what the work of the Son is. It's why he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Why? Because I've done the work. I bring peace between you and God. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle, humble of heart. You'll find what? You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what Jesus, this is the better that Jesus is inviting us into. The position of his seat is also a powerful way of conveying the, the kingly authority of Jesus. To be at the right hand of the Father was to assume a place of ultimate honor, of favor and authority. It means that he is above all powers, even death. 
and rulers over every aspect of the cosmos. It's, it's, it's all his. He is the great cosmic king. It also means that his creative agency and sustaining authority is now used for the creating and the sustaining of new life in believers. The Hebrews, you and me. This is what the author is trying to remind us of. Usually kings don't save their enemies. They, they destroy their enemies. It tends, tends to be the way of the kings. I'm watching um, The Last Kingdom on Netflix at the moment. It's sort of similar idea. Everyone's trying to kill each other. Here is a king with unlimited power and authority who rather than destroy those who have offended him, who have rebelled against him, takes their place. This is a king who becomes a servant, absorbs their offense, becomes the sacrifice for their sins and the means of reconciliation with God. Furthermore, Jesus, who has been described in powerful and um, potent ways, now dials all of that into your preservation, into, in, into preserving you, not just the universe, but you personally. He's your advocate now. That's what he's doing. Now, that's the work of the Son now. His role at the right hand of the Father, where he is, where he has the last say on all things, is to declare that you belong to him if you have placed your faith in him. That nothing can tear that away. Nothing can come and overpower that. Jesus is not just a saviour in some abstract way without any context or background. He didn't just turn up and die because things didn't go his way. He is the creator of all things. He is the ruler over all things who has come to personally deal with our sin and make all things new in accordance with everything that the Old Testament prescribed and pointed to and longed for. His person and his work are far superior and far better to any relationship or any ritual that you might be tempted to drift towards and put your faith in and put your trust in. Jesus is the Son of God, the revelation of God, the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to and longed for. He is the heir of all things, the radiance and the glory of God, the express nature of God's being, the preserver of creation, the purifier of sins and people, and the mediator and the preserver of faith. Where else and who else would you want to have your heart drift towards? And who else can provide a better anchor for our faith? Jesus is better. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across the table in these verses. That's what we're going to be looking at as we get underway in this letter. Uh, let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. That you haven't just left us to our own devices to try and work out our place in the universe, how we relate to greater realities like God, uh, how we find things like salvation and meaning, uh, how we uh, attach ourselves and find, is there life after death? Is there something greater than death? But you have spoken from the beginning of creation till this point right now, telling us that there is, and it all leads to, and it all points to understanding who Jesus is. 
and then coming into a personal relationship with him. Our prayer now is that we get underway in this book as we try and, and wrestle through all of this kind of deep, heavy, meaty stuff that we, would, that we would see how you were talking to us. We would see um, how you move towards us in grace and love uh, in ways that justly deal with the sin that we have that keeps us separate from you, that you would take that on yourself in our place. Would our hearts be warm with affection for you as we get into this book? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.